Well, welcome to the conclusion of our study, our three-week mini apologetic series, <clears throat> study on the canon, how we got the Bible that we have, how is it reliable, how do we know, all that good stuff. And of course, last week we talked about the resurrection. Tonight, we're going to look at the New Testament canon. We're kind of mixing two topics here tonight, kind of how we got the books that we have in our New Testament, the 27 that we have, and a little bit of a look at textual criticism, and you'll find out what that is in, in a minute. To start with, there's a bit of a controversy out there. And this guy on the left, I've picked on him before, it's because he deserves picking on. That's Bart Ehrman. He's a uh, New Testament scholar. You, I, I told you about him a little before. He's come out with several bestseller books. He was on um, The Daily Show once. Uh, I forget the, the name of that host. I don't watch that show. But uh, within three days, his book was a bestseller. And then since then, he's written like five more bestsellers. Basically trying to get people to attack the Bible, doubt the Bible. Um, and he was... He was kind of trained by a, by a very well-known New Testament scholar. The atheists and the agnostics and CNN and all the liberals, they, they love him because he's a Bible basher. On one hand, we have Bart Ehrman, and on the other we have, uh, at least you may recognize him, the, this is um, Chuck Herring. He's, he's just an, another Baptist preacher at a pretty big church in, in Tennessee, not too far from where we used to live. Let's just compare what these two guys say in their view of Scripture. Bart Ehrman says this. Not only do we not have the originals, which we don't, we don't have the first copies of the originals, maybe. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later. And these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. And so he spews this out at like University of North Carolina where he teaches and people just absorb it, and they, they love it, they eat it right up. And then we have, the, I'll call him the, the, the average preacher, saying stuff, and I heard him say this, basically, this Bible I hold in my hand is 100% accurate, and you can trust it every single word of it. Every single word. So, I mean, obviously one of them's wrong. Which one's wrong? Which one's right? The interesting thing is, this guy is a little bit more right than this guy. And don't worry, by the end of the night, you'll feel more comfortable with that statement. Okay, so for tonight, th this is just a continued study to build confidence in God's, in God's Word as handed down to us, the authority that it has, uh, who authored it, and to also continue to smash uh, the arguments against, against the knowledge of God. Like, there's this one position called radical skepticism or total despair. That's what this happy guy on the left believes. He believes because of all the hundreds of thousands of differences between all the Greek New Testament manuscripts, we have no idea what the original said. And when he says thousands and thousands, he literally means like 400,000. Okay? Let that be uncomfortable for a second, and we'll clear it up tonight. On the other side, you have people like that other preacher saying, well, every single word in every translation represents the original 100% down to the letter. And you can trust every bit of it. And that's all they say. That's where they leave it. They never cover it any further than that. And then our people are raised in church, and then they go out to universities, and they hear someone like him doing what he does, what you, what you just saw the quote of him saying, and people's faith. I mean, there are scholars receiving letters, hundreds of letters, thousands of letters, saying that they're losing their faith because of this. They don't, they're ready to throw the Bible out. So it's, it's a crisis. So we have to be prepared to defend against it. Just a little quick review. The originals, so far they're lost. They probably turned to dust many centuries ago from use and just from age. You know, it's, bugs ate them. In some cases, the, the Jews 
that were charged with the Old Testament scrolls, when the copies got worn, if they had errors in them, whatever, they actually they buried them. They threw them away. They got rid of them. The originals are gone. Even many of the first generation copies are gone. And only the originals in the original languages are 100% inerrant, without error. That's not something that every Christian believes, but, but it's a fact. We can't translate everything into English and think everything in English is 100% perfect in line with every word from the original. But that's okay. Don't worry. Don't let that bother you. Um, the Old Testament, as we said, was entrusted to the Jews. Right? We have that scripture in Romans 3, um, verses 1 and 2 which basically said, um, what advantage is there to being a Jew? And it said, much in every way that the, the very, they were entrusted with the very words of God, right? We studied that in the Old Testament, how the Jews were in charge of keeping the Old Testament. So now let's look at the New Testament. So it took about 100 years to complete, as we, as we said before. So let's talk about who wrote it. And of course, like we talked about, all scripture is God-breathed, so it all starts with God. He works through people, through human history, through circumstances, and through certain men he's chosen to write his words down, right? So it's all inspired by him. It's literally like it's God-breathed. But as far as who actually moved their pens on the pages, the authorship was entrusted to the apostles. And here are some examples. Uh, A few scriptures, if somebody could... I get a volunteer to read Acts uh, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. I was going to assign these earlier, and I forgot. Sorry. Um... In Acts chapter 2, verse... Well, who's got the first one? Anybody? I see a hand. Thank you. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. All right, Carl. And Acts 3, uh, verse 15. It's a good one. There you go. Okay. And, And the last one, Acts 10, verses 39 and 41. Okay. So let's just take a look at, at who wrote the New Testament. All right, that first one, Acts 1, 21 to 22. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So did you hear that? One of these, one of these who was, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection, okay? This is who we're talking about, eyewitnesses or, or people who were associates to the eyewitnesses. Uh, how about that next one, 2.32, Acts 2.32? This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And who's the we there? We would be, uh, obviously, it would be Luke, the writer, mm-hmm. and his associates, I don't know what they're named in the passage. So there we go. Witnesses, eyewitnesses. Acts chapter 3, verse 15. And kill the prince of life. God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Okay, so we get the message by now, and we can do this, several more verses. And then chapter 10, verses 39 and 41, 39 to 41. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Witnesses chosen when? Chosen before by, by God. That's who God entrusted to bring us the New Testament. Um, let's look at Paul. We know Paul wrote uh, a bunch of the New Testament. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 17. And sorry, I need a volunteer. All right. An account 
that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Wow. We hear mention of his epistles in there. We hear mention of the other scriptures, even all the way back when Second Peter was written. Let's look at Luke. How about Luke? I guess, I guess I'll read a couple. I just didn't want you guys to have to hear me all night. It gets old. Right, kids? <laughs> Don't answer that. Colossians 4, verse 14. Who wrote the book of Colossians? I think everyone in this church probably knows that Paul wrote it, right? So in, verse, in uh, chapter two, 4, verse 14, he says, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. And, and so here's a mention of uh, Paul mentioning Luke as, as his friend. And Luke wrote Luke, and he probably also wrote Acts, we believe. Right? He, were, he refers to Theophilus, the guy with the really cool name, in, in the beginning of Luke, and he also refers to him in the book of Acts. Peter. Peter was also an eyewitness. To save time, we'll, we'll move on a little bit. And say also that Mark, Mark based his testimony on Peter's testimony. And we'll look at an early church father example that will testify to that. So that's kind of who wrote it for the most part. We're talking about apostles, direct eyewitnesses or close associates of an eyewitness. So let's talk about how early did they write this stuff. And first I want to talk about how we date the New Testament books. When they date New Testament manuscripts, the short version is... They have a lot of different methods. And one of the things they do is they look at the handwriting. If you guys saw a picture of the Constitution, you'd be able to tell, hey, that handwriting, it came from the, what, 1700s or something like that, right? Or whenever the Constitution was written. And if you looked at someone's handwriting from today, you can see there's a noticeable difference, right? Now, this is grossly oversimplifying. But this, this is from a 12th century pocket Bible that was printed in Paris. It's an actual, it's a real thing. Uh, this is in Latin. But anyway, one of the things the textual critics do is they'll, as they dig up these old manuscripts, they're going to look at stuff like the handwriting because handwriting changed over the years very distinctly. It's, it's pretty obvious to them when certain handwriting, when certain font was used. Also, the paper they used. When did they start using this stuff? This is, this is vellum. This is animal skin, basically. It's really, really thin animal skin. Um, then there's papyrus which is basically a paper, or a pretty good paper, an old paper. It was expensive. But they can look at the paper and tell what region it came from. They know when it was used, when they stopped using it. They can even look at the ink. And the inks have all sorts of stuff in them that help them identify the region and the time and stuff. They also can, obviously, if they find other common objects like a coin or some other archaeology, some pottery in there, they can use that to help them figure out what date they should assign to something. So that's that's something paleographers do. Paleography is just uh, it's just looking at ancient writing and trying to figure out what it actually said. That's their main purpose, to assign a date and place of origin. And they're really good at it. One of the things they can do for dating, which they can't always do like with something as small as this, is carbon dating. Raise your hand if you heard of carbon dating, anybody? They use it to date stuff that used to be alive. Well, the py papyrus, the paper, or this stuff, animal skin... They, can, they have to take some of it and burn some of it. And long story short, they can come out with a date uh, within plus or minus 50 years. They can't do it with small stuff because I don't want them to do that to this. 
Okay. In fact, I'm putting it away right now. Paleographers and scientists have done compared carbon dating to paleography, and the dates come out pretty much the same. So it's pretty reliable, even if they can't rip a chunk off and burn it. All right, so with that, just some general dating. The Gospels, each book, if, if you were to, to start reading, you'd find each book of the New Testament, people will come up with their reasons for why they think a certain book is dated a certain way. But let's suffice to say that uh, most of them agree that the Gospels were all complete and written by, by the 80s. So before the close of the first century AD, so maybe like around there, okay? We're going to use this timeline a little bit tonight. What's earlier than the Gospels is Paul's letters. And they think from the 50s, 50s to 60s. In fact, most scholars will date 1 Corinthians, even the liberal scholars, the worst of them, will date 1 Corinthians to 55 AD. Think about that. Jesus, if he was crucified around 30 AD, we've got a book, 1 Corinthians, within 25 years of the resurrection. That's absolutely incredible. If it sounds like a long time to you between the events and the writing of the book, I want you to check out some of the other works from the ancient world and, and how this compares to them. First of all, we have our, our copies. The New Testament has earlier copies compared to other writings of the ancient world, and it has early authorship, like the stuff was written close to the actual events. Let's go ahead and compare this. If somebody could just help me hand some of these out. You may have something that looks, that looks a little bit like that, but I'll just go ahead and, and refer to the, to the paper here. All right, what, what the chart is doing is showing you what ancient figure we're talking about, when they lived, what's the earliest manuscript we have from their life, and what the distance is, how many years there are from the earliest thing we have and the original. Okay, so that's a huge gap for most of them, in fact, all of them. And then we're going to look at the number of copies. So if you look at that top one, the reliability of New Testament documents, I'm going to just highlight a couple. Aristotle, oh, I didn't even, he's not even on that one, but I'm still allowed to talk about him. He lived from, in the 4th century, okay, 380, well, I'm sorry, the 4th century B.C., so 384 to 322 B.C. The earliest manuscripts we have of his works date from 1100 A.D., so that's like 1,400 years after it was written. We only have five copies of his work. I remember being in a philosophy class at a college with an atheist professor saying, talking about Aristotle and Plato and saying, of course, he bashed the New Testament, but he would say stuff like, this stuff really happened. And, and this is the evidence that they'll use, these copies that are so far from the actual events. Uh, let's look at, well, we'll look at some more. Oh, Aristotle's right there. Why don't you tell me? Okay, Caesar. You guys heard of Caesar? You had his pizza tonight. Okay, he lived about 100 to 44 B.C., the earliest manuscript we have from the dude, the earliest pizza box we have from Caesar, 900 A.D. So math majors, that's like a thousand year gap. A thousand years. Well, this stuff really happened and we know it. Okay. We only have 10 copies of his stuff. Plato, there he is. He lived in those years. Earliest manuscript, 900 A.D., all the way on the other side. 1,200-year gap, and we've only got seven copies of his stuff. Do you see where we're going yet? It's pathetic that if people can doubt anything at all about the New Testament and what it says, then we can take everything in ancient history that they're certain really happened and just put it in the trash can because the New Testament blows it all out of the water. 
It's not even close, not even close at all. We'll look at, let's see, one more, just one more. Homer, okay, he's probably one of the, he has some of the best evidence. He lived around 900 BC, so the earliest manuscripts we have of his are 400 BC. That's only, only a 500 year gap. And we have 643 copies of his stuff. That's, that's not bad. In fact, that's pretty good for the ancient world. And then if you look in the far right of your paper, it has a percent accuracy column. And, and that's where we're going to get tonight, is so that when you look at the New Testament, you're going to see on the, on the bottom there, the New Testament, we have 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts or manuscript fragments. 5,800. I think that number is a little bit bigger than the rest that we have for the other guys, right? Okay. And they were written around A.D. 50 to 100. I'd say prior to 100. I think most of it, almost all of it, should have been complete by then. And the earliest copies we have, well, I won't spoil that yet, but there's good reason to say that we're not 100% certain of every single word, but we're over 99% certain of every word. We're going to dig into more in that in a little bit. You can put that one away for now. Okay, so if the Gospels were written in like uh, the 80s AD or 70s or somewhere after the cross by a few decades, how is it possible that the New Testament writers were able to keep that all straight in their mind and write it down? I mean, they had to do this by oral tradition, right? I don't know if that bothers you at all, but people talk about the game of telephone and say, well, we can't trust it because, because it's like the game of telephone and if you remember something and... If I whisper something over there on that side of the room, it's going to come out over there and it's going to sound really different. That's, that's not really how they did things back in the day. In fact, I memorized this, this great quote about how much they used their memory back in the day. And it goes, I forgot it, hold on. Okay, but we do have some quotes here just to talk real quick about oral tradition. Some quotes about oral tradition. Plato, you guys have heard of him, and remember he really existed. Plato says that this guy, Hippias, he was able to repeat 50 names after hearing them only once. Okay, that's not bad. Pliny the Elder, another really old dude, he reports that Cyrus was able to name every man in his army. And this other guy, Lucius, remembered the names of every person in the Roman Empire. And this guy, Charmidus, recited by heart any book in the libraries. I'll just give you one more, okay? Seneca boasted of being able to repeat 2,000 names read to him, and he can recite them in reverse order. So some of this historians think maybe it's a little bit of an exaggeration but for the Jews and for the Old Testament, they were expected to be able to memorize entire books of the Old Testament. In fact, the entire Old Testament. There are people they could recite the entire Old Testament. And it was upheld in their culture. One of the reasons is because you can't ask a paper, piece of paper any questions. So oral tradition was held pretty highly. In, there was a study done in anthropology. And long story short, it said that a big variety of cultures were found able to preserve extended epics like big long things or just by oral tradition stuff as long as 25 hours performed 25 hours you know how long it takes to to read through the gospel of mark it takes two hours (laughs) two hours so do you think do you think the gospel writers could contain okay so here's the bible here's so the old testament is let's say most of it and not just the whole New Testament, because they just needed to know the four Gospels. And not all four Gospels, because each one just had to know their Gospel. So they can remember the whole Old Testament. You think they can handle about yay big? Yeah. Not a problem for them. Not a problem at all. 
That being said, they were able to keep the stuff all square in their brains. But now let's talk about another big topic, all of the differences. I'm going to have to speed over some of this. That guy you heard before said, oh, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of differences between all of the manuscripts. And, well, he's right. Let's just look at what that really means. So there are 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts. And if you compare the differences between every word in every New Testament manuscript we have, this is all, all the handwritten Greek New Testament manuscripts that we have, you'll find about 400,000 differences between all the manuscripts. Anybody ready to panic yet? I mean, it sounds a little panicky if you don't know anything about it, right? And your professor's telling you this, and you're like, Mommy, what do I do? I mean, I can't trust my Bible. Do I throw it away? You can't... No, no, don't do that. So, out of all these differences, I just want you to know this. 95% of those differences, who cares, okay? 95% of them. I'll prove it to you. 95% of them mean absolutely nothing. That's because... Most of them are stuff like spelling errors. Anybody made any spelling errors? I found one in my presentation. If you find it, you get extra points. There's also stuff that can't be translated. Oh, getting back to spelling real quick. Did you know they didn't have dictionaries in the first century? You couldn't go to like Luke's like bookstore and get a dictionary. It was okay. They were cool with spelling my name. They could spell my name three, four different ways. And it didn't matter, right? You'd still know it was my name, right? K-E-I or K-I-E, what's the rule? I don't know, my name just, it doesn't match the rule. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so they didn't care at all. But each time in each Greek manuscript that they found, let's say, my name here and then my name in this, in this one, and they're spelled differently, that's a difference or a variant. They call them variants. We're going to call them differences tonight, okay? Each time times 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts. You see how we can get to 400,000 in a hurry? I'm surprised it's not like 2 million. I mean, really. Because it's names, it's, it's spelling, and then it's other stuff that can't even be translated. I'm going to show you a visual example of this in a second. But there's stuff in Greek, it just doesn't even translate into English. Then there's stuff like word order. The way Greek is written, it's an inflected language, and word order doesn't matter. You can take a sentence, and the word order can be switched, and it still comes out the other side with the same meaning. That's just how the language is. I'll show you some examples because some of you look like you don't believe me. So here's an example from John chapter 10. Here's John chapter 10, verse 1. And this is truly I say to you, okay? And that's how it looks. And here's I say to you. There's the standard text. We'll say that's the one that we're pretty sure is right. And then here's I say to you but with a different spelling of you. You see there's an extra letter in there? That counts as one of the 400,000. And in every manuscript it appears, that counts. But when you translate it, how does it come out? It comes out exactly the same, right? Here's I say to you with another, a misspelling of I say. You see, I, I say and there's an extra, what is, whatever that thing is in Greek. Okay, there's an extra one. Okay, and guess what it still translates to in English? Uh, the same thing. So, spelling differences. We got, we got a bunch of them here. Okay, this is John 10, 2. The one who enters through the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Is. This little, this little word here can be spelled all these different ways. Here's one spelling of is. See this little N? Look, that's, that's pronounced new, I guess. The, it's called a movable new in Greek. And that's one of the things that we literally can't translate into English. There's 
thousands and thousands and thousands of them in this total of 400,000 that everyone panics about. Okay, so no, you can see, you get the hint by now, there's no need to panic. Yeah, I, I think you get the hint, so I'll move on from that. Word order differences. John 10.1, I say to you, reverse order, no difference in meaning. You see that? See the words are, they're flipped? And guess what? When, it's, when someone trans, sits down with the Greek New Testament and they translate it into English, what are they going to translate it to? The exact same thing. But all the differences in word order, they're all counted as one of those 400,000. I think, I, think I think that's enough. I think we get it by now. So that's why we say 95%. Who cares? It means nothing, nothing at all. In fact, I'll read it really fast. Our, one of my favorite people, Bart Ehrman, said about these 400,000, to be sure, of all the hundreds of thousands of textual changes found among our New Testament manuscripts, most of them are completely insignificant, immaterial, and of no real importance for anything other than showing that scribes could not spell or keep focused any better than the rest of us. So this guy talks out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, he's got a big mouth, I guess. But it makes no difference. It makes no difference to him. And if you go down the line of all the scholars, conservative, liberal-like, atheist, agnostic, it doesn't matter. So don't, don't let anyone tell you, oh, there's all these differences, and, and you know, they mean a lot, and we can't, we can't figure out the original. That's a bunch of uh, stuff you find on a farm, okay? That's what that is. All right. So what about the remaining 5%? Nobody asked about the 5% that's worth looking at, but I know you were thinking about it. You especially, you had that look on your face. A couple of you did. All right, so we'll talk about that. There are three of the most significant examples. You've probably heard of these. I'm only going to just focus on, on two of them real quick. In 1 John chapter 5, uh, we have, I have verses 6 to 9. I'm going to start reading to save a little time. Here it is in the NIV. So if you could just listen up here. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 7, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. So raise your hand if you have a new NIV. Anybody? The NIV in the footnotes, and if you guys open up your Bibles... In the footnotes, you're going to find that it says something interesting about that. First John 5, verse 8, it says, Late manuscripts of the Vulgate testify, and, and then it goes on and says, and then verse 8, and there are three that testify on earth. And then it gives you in parentheses, it says, not found in any Greek manuscript before the 14th century. What? So if you've heard of that controversy before about the three that testify, and there are some people like... Some King James-only advocates, they're like, well, this is an attack on the Trinity. I have a friend who said that, you know, this is one of the reasons they pulled that verse out. We, me and, we visited a church early, um, early on when we first knew each other, when we first got married. This was like in New York. And this guy pulls out this Bible. And he's like, let me show you something, because he saw I had an NIV. And he opens up his Bible, and he tells me, go ahead and read this verse. And it's like, and I'm looking for it. I'm like, it's not there. And I didn't know any better. So he, he, and so, anyway, they they say that people have removed that verse because they're trying to attack the Trinity, and that's not the reason why at all. The reason is because these people are doing what's called textual criticism. Their goal 
is to be like a paleographer to discover what the original said. And if the original said it, awesome, let's include it. If not, put it in a book or a commentary or something if you want, but don't include it in the Bible and call it scripture. And there are several places in scripture where you see little footnotes like that. Boy, I wish I had more time for that topic. The King James just presents it. It doesn't have any footnote or anything. They don't even want to discuss the other manuscript history. And then in the New King James Version, it does. It does footnote that passage. And it says, only four or five very late manuscripts contain those words, the words in verse 8 there, in Greek. So there's one passage. Now, do we really need this passage to prove the Trinity? No, does the doctrine of the Trinity rest on having the three that testify and these three agree, you know, the water, the spirit, and the blood? Do we need, no. Can we start in the book of Genesis and start getting the Trinity? How about where God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness? Even before that, it said the spirit of God hovered over the waters. We can go on and on for an hour just about the Trinity. So it, it, it's okay. We don't have to latch on to a passage that probably wasn't in the original. One more that's a little, a little bit shocking to some people is the woman in a, caught in adultery in John chapter eight, and I'm just I'm pretty short on time, so I won't go into that too much. But some people go crazy because that's where Jesus draws a line in the sand, let he who has sin cast the first stone, and people are like, man, I love that story for years. I didn't know that. Well, you probably all you had to do is look down at the footnotes in your Bible, and I'm not saying that to be I don't know what the word is, but. It's, it's right there. You can find out that it, it's highly unlikely that that was in the original. There's a dispute about it, but that's part of that, that 5%, okay? Where maybe it, maybe it means something, maybe it doesn't. And, and just on that story, do we really need that passage to prove that Jesus is merciful beyond anybody's definition of mercy in the world? Can't we just look to the cross and what he did while he's on the cross being crucified saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Our merciful Savior does not need any spurious, made-up passage shoved into the Bible. Even if it's orthodox, even if it sounds good and it seems like something you may have done, if it's not in the originals, we don't need it there. And God's okay with that. And one last thing, if you can open your Bibles up to Mark, the very last chapter. Mark chapter 16. And if you look at the end of it, in many Bibles, you'll find that it ends ends at verse 8. Without having time to go into all of that, this is, uh, Ethan, thank you for letting me borrow your Bible, by the way. I appreciate it. This is, this is Ethan's Bible. And so at the end, if we look at the bottom, and this, this girly version is a New King James Version, and here's what it says on the bottom. It says verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in certain manuscripts, okay, as not original. They're not in Codex Sinaiticus. That's the oldest complete Bible we have that we looked at two weeks ago. They have it in London. You can go see it. And Codex Vaticanus, which is in the Vatican, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. Okay, so you can see why they put that note on it. There are other versions that say similar notes. Yeah, the NIV says, if, if you read the bottom of it, in verses 9 through 20, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses, meaning ancient manuscripts, don't have those verses. That's part of the 5%. But remember what, what our friends, Bart Ehrman, and what, all the, what the scholars agree on is, if you go through those differences, those are the biggest ones, by the way. You're not going to find some other big, big controversy about some huge chunk of scripture. Those are it. Those are the three. It makes no difference to any critical doctrine of our faith, right? Can you still learn about salvation through Jesus Christ? Is that, is that in jeopardy? Is anything, any critical doctrine of our faith in jeopardy by those few disputed passages? 
Not a single one. Dan Wallace, he literally wrote the book on New Testament Greek. I believe you have his book. A lot of pastors, any pastor that looks at Greek, probably you probably have his book too. They have his stuff on Greek, on New Testament Greek. He's been doing this since, since the year I was born. Anyway, he debated Bart Ehrman, and every time he does, he asks him this question. So how many of our core beliefs are jeopardized by this less than 5% that we're talking about? Uh, none. Okay. So anyway. Okay, I think you get the message. Talking about the canon now and the list of books that we have, the 27 books. Now that we've kind of seen that the differences among them are meaningless, let's talk about how we got the 27. Do we have any early lists of the New Testament books, especially the 27 we do have some early lists of the New Testament here. We have this thing. This is called the Mortarian Fragment. Everyone go, ooh, the Mortarian Fragment. It's the oldest list of uh, New Testament books. The original is dated to about A.D. 180. One of the ways they dated it to that is because it made reference to Pope Pius. Nice name. Um, it lists 22 of the 27 books we have in the New Testament. So don't let that give you heartburn, but it, it does list 20. It, it, it's missing a couple, including James and Second Peter. Second Peter took a little bit longer for the early church to kind of come behind, partly because the Greek was, is kind of a different form. And yeah, we don't have time for that, but don't worry about that. We have other early witnesses to the books that we have in the New Testament. Another one is called the Diatessaron. It sounds like a character in the Avengers, the Diatessaron. But anyway, the Diatessaron is a harmony of the four Gospels. It was created in the second century by Tatian. And Tatian was a Christian apologist. He was, a, he was friends with Justin Martyr. So pretty cool dude, probably. This Diatessaron, it, it basically, if you take the four Gospels and any redundant stories, you just kind of cut them out and glue everything together. And, and that's what a harmony is, a gospel harmony. And this, written in the second century, wasn't even the first one of its kind, but it was the most popular. And as a result, it was translated into all sorts of languages, Greek, Syriac, Arabic, Latin, even Old English, um, which is not like the 1600s English. I mean, if any of you have ever read anything in Old English, I'm talking like Old, Old, Old English. It doesn't even look or sound like actual English. So it's written in a bunch of different languages. So we're able to piece together all the fragments. We don't really have a whole original of it. But so the four Gospels were circulating around and they were circulating together. And certainly by the second century, if this was created in the second century, they were circulating obviously long before that, right? The earliest of early. Let's talk even earlier. 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to need our, our timeline here. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 9. We talked about the resurrection on the basis of this chapter. This, this passage, if you guys want to turn there, you can, but I'm going to have it up here. This passage is so incredibly early. Even the most liberal scholars date this passage to within just a few years of the resurrection. So how do we know it's so early? Well, we know, first of all, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians or AD 55. Everybody agrees with that. So if the cross happened 30 AD and he wrote in 55 AD, what's the gap? How many years? 25 years? Okay, good. Thank you. I was checking my math. You remember what we saw over here with all these, all these old dudes and how many years there were from the stuff that was written about them? 25 years. Let's see, who comes closest to 25 years on here? And let's see, we have Homer. Well, on the stuff I have, it's Homer's within 500 years. You're, you might see Pliny at 750-year gap between the originals and uh, the first available copies. 
25 years is unbelievable. It's unheard of in anything about the ancient world. Completely, totally blows everything away. And 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, they think is even earlier than that. We know this because Paul visits Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18. Well, let's just look at it real quick. Scholars have called this a creed. It's like it's a compact, kind of formalized version of a miniature testimony to the gospel. And there are many ways that they know it. That's an hour talk, but we'll do it in three minutes. So we'll start here. For I, this is Paul, right? I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Hang on, he received it? Where did he receive it? Galatians 1, he was hanging out with James and Peter. If Paul was converted in 32 AD, and he visited Galatians 1.18, that was in 35 AD, okay? If he, he got the material there. All the scholars virtually agree he got, he got his material, this creed, when he visited uh, Jerusalem in, in Galatians chapter 1. So that's five years after the cross? Five years? That's unbelievable. Let's look at this creed for a second. I want you to look at the formatting, formatting and the words that are highlighted. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, and now you know where he received it, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. You see all these and that's? What's the Greek word for that? Hoti. Hoti. Yeah, the, the scholars will tell you, seeing all of those clauses together in Greek, it's totally unique. And it shows that this thing was stylized and formatted and condensed like a creed. You guys have heard of the Nicene Creed? We're in, the Apostles' Creed? Well, here's the creed in 1 Corinthians 15. And it takes years for a creed to be developed. So long story short, lots of folks will say, we'll date that creed to just within months. There are some that will date it within months of the resurrection. The earliest of early, I'm talking mega early, nothing else even comes close. Uh, there it is in the Greek, the uh, OT, yodi yodi, or whatever. There it is. Just trust me, the formatting and stuff indicates that it's creed and it's super early. I hate to not do it justice, but here we go. So we have, we got some pretty early books. We got pretty early references in, in different manuscripts. And now we're going to look at early church fathers, okay? Early church fathers, there's a list of them. I, you guys have it in your paper on the back. The early church fathers were people that made a lot of reference. They were leaders in the church, bishops and stuff, but they also made a lot of references to the New Testament in their work. So we can look through their letters, look through their sermons, notes, lectionaries, all that stuff. Everything we can find that they ever wrote. And we can see, if you look at this chart, basically it says all these old dudes with weird names, they all reference the Bible an awful lot. You could see at the top of your page, look at the book of Matthew and look how many of them reference the, the Gospel of Matthew. Like just about all of them. And there's the years that they lived. You guys can study this at home. Look in the middle of the page, you've got Hippolytus. Do they have vaccines for that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I hope so. Hippolytus, look how much he quoted. Look how many books he referenced. These are just like the books that they referenced. This is not the number of times they referenced it. So anyway, let's look at a couple of quick examples of some real specific early church fathers. And we're just going to look at a small handful of that list. Clement, let's talk about Clement of Rome. Okay, there he is. Good looking dude. He lived near the end of the first century, 
And he was a bishop of the church in Rome. And he was known for a letter that he wrote from Rome to the church in Corinth. They call it First Clement or the First Epistle of Clement. It's dated around AD 96, probably before the Apostle John died. There's this other, this other church father, Irenaeus, and he tells us that Clement of Rome, this is a quote from his work, he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have had the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears and their traditions before their eyes. Did you hear that? This guy had seen the apostles. He'd hung out, he spent time with the apostles. Clement's letter is loaded with scripture, 150 quotes at least from the Old and New Testament. And here's a quote, one of his quotes. He encouraged the Corinthians to return to their holy calling and to attend to what is good, pleasing, and acceptable in the sight of him who formed us. Doesn't that almost sound like a Bible verse? Like Romans 12.2, like his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This guy sounds like someone who had read the Bible. It really? In the first century? Yeah. In fact, he referred to almost every book in the New Testament. So this is one out of, how many are there? Somebody will count later. There's a bunch. So let's look at Papias. From, he lived from 60, AD 60 to 130. So another first century guy with poor choice in hats. And I don't know what to say about him. He was the bishop of someplace in, in Asia Minor, in, which is now Turkey. And he recorded details of Jesus and the apostles in five books. They're mostly lost. We do have some third, third century, second century uh, writings about them. And these other early church fathers, Eusebius and Irenaeus, they, they quoted him. So according to them, they were in this writing in the second century. This guy knew the apostle John. That's pretty cool. And it's from Papias, this guy, that we learned that Mark's gospel is based on the preaching of Peter. And he confirms that Matthew wrote his gospel. So you're seeing a little pattern of the early church fathers recognizing the books that we have in the New Testament. And we're not doing the subject justice at all, barely. This is just scratching the surface, just to kind of get you interested in it a little. What we start to see from the church fathers is that they, don't, they didn't dispute, even though they may have had some little differences on some peripheral issues, they all agreed from the earliest days of Christianity that Jesus was worshipped as, as a risen Savior and worshipped as God. And we'll look at Polycarp. You guys have heard of Polycarp? Dude, again with the hats. I don't know. Uh, first century guy. He was a bishop of the early church, a disciple of, of John, and a teacher of Irenaeus, one of those other guys we mentioned. He wrote a letter to the, to the Philippians, and this letter quotes from many New Testament books. Look at them all. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. He even calls Ephesians sacred scripture. So yet another testimony to um, the acceptance of the early church of the books that we have in the New Testament. According to Irenaeus, Polycarp was instructed by the apostles. He was brought into contact with many who had seen Christ. That must have been awesome to see these, meet these eyewitnesses who can confirm everything that was written about Christ. Polycarp was martyred by the Romans, and his death, it was very influential even among the pagans. This, he was martyred, and he was in his 80s. And basically they told him, you know, light a candle to Caesar and, and we don't have to go through with this. And, and he basically said, my Christ has been faithful to me all these long years. I'm not going to deny him now. And so he died like a real hero, a real martyr. You know, what a testimony. And it affected even the pagans in his day. People talked about it. Just by way of summary of, of just three of the early church fathers out of that humongous list, of the four Gospels alone, just the four Gospels, they quoted 
or, or almost quoted nine, over 19,000 times from the Gospels. That's from the first century on. 19,000 quotes of just the Gospels. And we haven't even gotten to any of the other books. They did so much quoting that what would happen if we had lost the New Testament? Somebody just took the New Testament. There was only one, we'll just say. They, they put it on their bag, and their bag got lost because they were flying United. Okay? So the New Testament is gone. And now where does that leave us? Do we have any witness to the text of the New Testament? Well, all these guys, it, we just looked at the Gospels. All, they quoted from the New Testament about over a million times. So much so that we could virtually reconstruct the entire New Testament just from the quotes from the early church fathers. Did you hear that? Isn't that amazing? You can't do that with any other work. It, it just doesn't happen. There's an institute in Germany that actually does this stuff. You know, I'm, I thank God for nerds because they're doing some good work, you know. It's important work. We're going to talk about uh, stuff that doesn't belong in the New Testament. We talked about the Apocrypha. If you guys remember, there are several reasons why we ditched the Apocrypha. Well, now there's this other stuff called Pseudepigrapha. And you don't want any of that on you either, trust me. Okay? And if you do get it and your doctor tells you, sorry, you have Pseudepigrapha, what's the cure for it? The real New Testament. Okay? So we're going to go ahead and, and look at some of the Pseudepigrapha. You may have heard some of these books. Acts of Paul, Apocalypse of Paul. The... The ones you probably heard of, Epistles of Barnabas and the Gospel of Thomas. Anybody heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Anybody? That's probably the one you've heard of the most. I see that hand. Okay. The one of the reasons is because the evidence, the scholars, the, the, the ones that want it included in the New Testament, say they have the strongest case for it. So we'll just look specifically at that one, and the others we'll just throw in the trash automatically. Um, but there are reasons to reject the pseudepigrapha, similar to why we rejected the Apocrypha. The reasons are pretty similar. They're written under false names. For example, the Gospel of Thomas, it was not written by Thomas. Uh, the Gospel of Peter, guess what? It wasn't written by Peter. There's like 40 of those Gospels. They have false names. And one of the reasons we know that they weren't written by the people that they were attributed to is because they were found centuries after those people died. And, you know, if someone's writing under a false name, then... How do you call that scripture if God is not God doesn't lie, right? So that's one reason to toss it. Another reason to the issue of false names, Paul addressed it, addressed it in his day, and again to save time, um, well I'll just kind of read it here. But Paul was addressing the church in Thessalonians, and Paul said not to be alarmed by a letter supposed to have come from us. Don't be alarmed, he said. And then um, he went on to say that yeah, someone tried basically was trying to forge forge his letters and mislead believers. So this was going on all the way back in Paul's time. So Paul was forced to take action, and he said, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is a distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. So there are your references if you want to look that up. Paul was dealing with this stuff too. So if he had to deal with it, well, it's still here with us, so we got to deal with it to a, to a degree. Um, another reason why we're going to throw these things out is because there's unbiblical stuff in them. We'll look at Thomas. We'll look at a specific example of what's unbiblical in there. And in most cases, like we said, the dating is just, is just way too late, way after the New Testament was written. Gospel of Peter, dated to 150 A.D., and the New Testament was complete before the year 100, maybe around 80, at least most of it. So, But certainly not everything was done way before 150. 
The Gospel of Mary, we don't even know when that was dated to. The earliest reference we could find to it is in the 3rd century. So, sorry, we can't include you. Um, the Gospel of Thomas, a little bit earlier, dated to 140. Okay, so let's take a closer look at Thomas and see if we think we should include it. It it's, contains 114 sayings of Jesus, and these are supposedly secret sayings. And here's a quote from it. These are the hidden words that the living Jesus spoke. And Didymus Th Judas Thomas wrote them down. Liar. He did not. And we'll look at the teaching. It, it contradicts the four Gospels. For example, saying 114 says this. And I know I picked on Eve a couple of weeks ago, so I'll give, this is my chance to redeem myself for picking on her. Jesus said, see, I shall lead her so that I will make her male. What? That she too may become there's the spelling error, none of you caught it, may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, then that's just one quote of it. This is, I'm sorry, this is nutty stuff. Yeah, exactly. So this is one reason why we don't, why we don't include it. The reasons we shouldn't include Thomas is, are similar to the reasons that we shouldn't include any of the other books or the Apocrypha. So what principles did the new early church fathers follow in compiling the New Testament that we have? There are three, sometimes four principles, depending which scholars you look at. But one principle we talked about is, was the author an apostle or had a close connection with an apostle? Okay, we can see that Paul, right? He counts. Peter, right? We count them. Yeah, people who lived way after them and wrote after them. Sorry, we can't count them. Uh, another thing was, and this is a really big one, was the book already being accepted by the church? Let's look at the first century church and see if they counted this book as scripture or not. Did they use it? Did they read from it? Did they worship from it? Another test was if the book contained consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching. I kind of don't think Thomas's statement was very orthodox, so we'll throw it out. And another test that some, some people kind of just don't know if number four was really a test, but did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, Thomas wasn't written by the disciple. It um, was not universally recognized as a gospel. In fact, they all called it a forgery. So if, if they had reason in the first century to reject it, we have reason now to. It was rejected by not just the church, the church leaders, but also the majority of Christians, and there's, there's historical evidence for that. And it contains a bunch of contradictions and sayings that counter just the character and nature of God. So therefore, it doesn't bear the marks of a work by the Holy Spirit. You're going to find that, if you apply that to the rest of the Pseudepigrapha and the Apocrypha, you're going to find that of all those books. We're going to talk about Nicaea real quick. You, raise your hand if you heard of the Council of Nicaea. Anybody? Okay. You heard of the Nicaean Creed? Okay. Well, that's where this came from. The Council of Nicaea. Sorry, I don't have a cool picture of them. This was in 325 AD, and basically Emperor Constantine said, hey, we need to get this thing together. Some people claim that the Council of Nicaea was there to settle, to declare what the canon is. You guys ever heard of the Da Vinci Code? Horrible, unbiblical stuff. And it's a novel. The guy's not even a scholar, and he's writing a novel, turns it into a movie, and guess what? People are like, oh, see, this council got together and Emperor Constantine declared Christ God because before that, nobody thought he was God. And by the way, they also told us what books we're going to put in the New Testament. And that also is the stuff you get on a farm, okay? Uh, you'll find out why. So there's the claim. Jesus was declared God by Constantine um, at this council. 
And the truth is that they got together to go after uh, Arianism and to look at questions like, you know, how can Jesus be God and man? And they were just kind of looking at that, the, some issues around the Trinity. I'll let this New Testament scholar, he says it better than I could. So here's what they really did at the Council of Nicaea. Sorry, it's a big quote, but you'll like it. Constantine did call the Council of Nicaea, yes. And one of the issues involved Jesus' divinity, whether or not he was God. But this was not a council that met to decide whether or not Jesus was God. No, on the contrary, everyone at the council already agreed that Jesus was divine. Dan, but, but Dan Brown said that they... Yeah, he's wrong. Okay? That wasn't even a question for them. They already knew ahead of time he was God. But they were just struggling to understand how Jesus' divinity could work in light of the fact that he was also human, and also how could he be God if there's only one God. And those are good questions that even us Christians today can kind of struggle with, because intellectually, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It blows our mind. Well, he is God, you know, so he, he, can, he can blow our mind, and that's okay. So they were trying to understand that stuff, but they didn't meet to decide whether or not Jesus was God. Uh, how could both Jesus and God be God if there's only one God? Those were the issues that were addressed at Nicaea, not whether or not Jesus was divine. And there certainly was no vote to determine Jesus' divinity, and it wasn't declared by Constantine, okay? This was already common knowledge to Christians and has been from the early years of Christianity. Oh, by the way, you know who said that? Bart Ehrman, the guy you saw at the beginning. Yep. And scholar after scholar will agree with this statement. If you study Nicaea, they didn't get there. It wasn't even on the agenda to decide which books are in the New Testament. It just wasn't even, it wasn't even discussed. It's disgusting that people will try to tell us that this, that's where they decided what books were in the New Testament. So on the issue of it, was Jesus God? Was Jesus considered God before Nicaea? Okay, real quick, Council of Nicaea was in what year? 325, somebody remember 325, okay? So let's see what Polycarp said. We just heard about him. He was martyred in his 80s. And he lived from... 69 to 155. Was that before Nicaea? Or, okay, it was before Nicaea. My math is good. Here's what he said in the letter to the Philippians. Now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal high priest himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ, eternal, eternal high priest, may he build you up in the faith and truth and to us with you and all those under heaven who believe, who will yet believe in our Lord and God. Jesus Christ, and in his Father who raised him from the dead. Uh, I think that was before Nicaea. But maybe he was just one guy. He was just a little off that day. Okay, let's see what the others say. Justin Martyr, he lived 100 to 165. Is that before Nicaea? You sure? Okay. And here's what he says. And that Christ being Lord and just a man, no, and God, the Son of God, so God the Son, and appearing formerly in power as a man and an angel, and in the glory of fire, as at Mo, like when Moses in the burning bush in Exodus, so also was manifested at the judgment executed on Sodom. Wow, Jesus was even there at the judgment back then, before he was born, and has demonstrated, has been demonstrated fully by what he by what has been said. So there we have just a martyr calling him Lord and God. Here's another quote. Permit me first to recount the prophecies which I wish to do in order to prove that Christ is called both God and Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts? Old Testament term? Time? All right. Okay, well, I think we're just about done anyway. So here's why this, this is all important. There are issues at stake like the deity of Christ. 
People are running around claiming that the deity of Christ was decided by Constantine. They declared him God. They made him God at the Council of Nicaea. The Bible, the early Christians didn't think he was God. Those people have just simply never read. They haven't even done the most simple, basic levels of research. Um, as you've seen, the church fathers considered him God. The apostles considered him God. It's all over the New Testament. So there's that guy, Dan Brown. You, you've probably seen that cover in a bookstore, maybe. Big, big bestseller claiming all sorts of stuff, claiming that Jesus wasn't, he was just a mere man until the Council of Nicaea. And that's what he said. And that was in the year 325 that Nicaea came out. Well, let's go ahead and and take a look at this thing real quick. You guys know what this is? I hope not, because then you're like a nerd or something. But I know what it is. This is um, papyrus, this is P-52. It's not an airplane, it's not a fighter jet. It's papyrus fragment, okay? And... This is from John chapter 8, I think. And it is the earliest known piece of any New Testament manuscript we have. And you know what they've dated this thing to? The dates vary a little. Paleography varies. And they couldn't carbon date it. You don't want to rip that apart. It's like the size of a credit card, so no one was going to let them do that, right? But the dates they come up with are around the year 100 to 150 A.D. Some people have dated it even to the year 80 A.D. So the book of John was around back then, and we have rock-solid proof of that. So since the book of John was around from the beginning, let's go ahead and see what John chapter 1, verse 1 says. Just real quick, anybody know it off the top of your head? In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, and then later on in that chapter it says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 1, hundreds of years before the Council of Nicaea ever existed. Jesus has always been, just what the apostles have told us faithfully and reliably in the New Testament, he's always been God in the flesh, a risen Savior, the real deal. And on that note, I guess I'm out of time, so hopefully this has helped you a little bit to, just to whet your appetite a little for this topic and just to be ready to defend the Bible a little. Totally didn't do it justice, but we got at least a little a little intro to it. Um, just real quick by way of review, 5,800 New Testament manuscripts. Yeah, 400,000 differences between them all, but most of them, who cares? They don't even make the slightest difference in all the world, okay? So keep that in mind. You can trust your, your Bible that you have in your hands. It represents the Word of God. Maybe not every exact letter is 100% perfect, but it's, it's real, real, real close. Far closer than anything else in the ancient world has ever been. God, thank you for this chance to uh, look at your word and how it was delivered to us. We thank you for the faithful men who just put their lives all on the line to get it to us. And I pray that you'd help us to give the Bible uh, the value that it deserves in our life by reading it, studying it, applying it to our lives, and sharing it with others. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.